You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dermot Wheeler from NUI Galway. This paper was entitled Warham St. Ledger, Francis Rush and the Nine Years' War in the Queen's County. By the dawn of the 1580s and following the outbreak of the Second Desmond Rebellion under James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, the plantation of Leash and Offaly, um, situated in the heart of the Midlands, had drastically deteriorated and had finally begun to show the negative effects of several prolonged years of relentless warfare and destruction. The Moors and O'Connors, who had quickly flocked to Desmond's side upon his landing on Irish shores in July 1579, utilised the natural fastness of the Sleeve Bloom Mountains to assist John Fitzgerald in attacking several towns throughout Leash, including the fortress of Maryborough, which was burned and sacked in the autumn of 1580. With the rebellion promptly wilted by the year 1581, the Crown began to suppress the two Gaelic Midlands tribes with ruthless efficiency. Within the short period of time, the government allegedly, quote, brought the O'Moors in manner on their knees and allegedly subdued and drove the O'Connors from their heartland of Offaly. Thus, by the time of the collapse of the Second Desmond Rebellion in November 1583, the O'Moore and O'Connor coalition was allegedly a spent force, and the Crown was finally able to usher in a period of relative peace to the Midlands that was largely only disrupted by the outbreak of the Nine Years' War. Hugh O'Neill's uprising, much like the Second Desmond Rebellion itself, had a drastic effect on the Queen's County. Um and the Gaelic and English settlers alike who bore the brunt of this devastation. It also had a profound effect um, and acted as a stern test of loyalty for the numerous individuals who assumed prominent positions within the local government of the Queen's County. In the midst of the chaos, Thomas Butler, 10th Earl of Ormond, who lost his nephew during the unsuccessful relief of Maryborough in the late 1590s, launched a scathing attack upon the various Crown captains scattered throughout the county for not offering more of resistance to the rebel onslaught for having surrendered their strongholds, quote, most vilely and cowardly, being well furnished with munition and victual. Other critics stated that they would not, quote, much commend the valour of the gentlemen of Leash of English blood. It, would, it were a good course they should better be looked to, both as regards the tenure of their lands and as to answering Her Majesty's service, wherein they have been slack and faulty. This has greatly increased the pride of the rebels. There can be no question that the problem of ineffective and negligent captains was a serious concern for the government. Thomas Lee, for example, the Elizabethan Army captain, encapsulated the sentiment when he argued that, quote, the negligence of officers hurt the subject and put the prince to charge. In turn, Lee claimed that these individuals drained the administration's treasury by, quote, many thousands of pounds to recover Leach and Offaly from the traitors. Over the course of this paper, therefore, I will address just how valid these assessments were via a case study of two captains in particular, Warham St. Ledger and Francis Rush. However, before we can 
properly analyse these, these um, individuals, it is imperative to explain what the government actually expected of their officers in the Midlands. Arguably, the answer appeared twofold. Firstly, these men were expected to advance gradually socially and social and political reform and extend English rule throughout Ireland. In order to achieve this, the captains were instructed to favour the lordships that were sympathetic towards the government's aspirations, in addition to holding local informal judicial sessions that dispense common law. Secondly, and much more important for a turbulent border shire such as the Queen's County, defence was paramount. Therefore, in such a region where peace was dubious, the Tudor regime ignored the overriding need of reform in order to preserve and consolidate their position. Hence, captains such as St. Ledger and Rush were expected to retain government-held positions and punish any rebels who threatened to unsettle existing balances of power. Thus, we based upon these two captains' ability to accomplish this goal that their merits would be judged. The first officer, Warren St. Ledger, was born in Hollenburn, Kent, the eldest son of William St. Ledger, who himself was the eldest son of the former Lord Deputy, Anthony St. Ledger. Unfortunately, there's a great deal of confusion and general mix-up between Warham and his uncle, Sir Warham St. Ledger, who served in Munster during Lord Deputy Sidney's tenure and beyond. Little is known of Captain Warham St. Ledger's earlier career, other than he most likely arrived in Ireland at some stage in the 1570s, serving under Walter Deverell. By 1583, then having ensured the full support and commendation of Lord Justices Wallop and Loftus, St. Ledger put his name forward for a position in Leash, where he volunteered to spearhead the prosecution of the O'Moores and the Keatons. Unsurprisingly, on the 6th of August 1584, he was appointed Lieutenant of Maryborough and was granted the overall title of Governor of Leash. Little is known of his actions in the county in the intervening years before the outbreak of the Nine Years' War, other than the Queen's peace was generally maintained. We do know that he claimed to be owed somewhere in the region of £600 for the maintenance of his troops at the stronghold, which the Queen stressed was to be levied upon the inhabitants of the county and not the Crown. Following the outbreak of Tyrone's Rebellion in 1594, St. Ledger remained a sole lieutenant leash, but we know that he also played an active role further afield, such as in Ulster, where he acted as chief Crown negotiator with the rebel Hugh O'Neill. However, following the outbreak um, of only MacRory O'Moore's coinciding uprising in the Queen's County in the year 1596, St. Ledger diverted his full attention to the devastated and beleaguered Shire. It would appear that Warren was even somewhat relieved by the outbreak of the war, as he stated, quote, For now the Queen shall know what to expect, whereas if we had patched up a peace with the rebels, no doubt in an instant we should have had our all our throats cut. For St. Ledger, the solution to quelling the rebellion was relatively, relatively quite straightforward. Quote, the Queen must either resolve to now conquer Ireland or be conquered out of it. Hence, offering the O'Moores no further protection, St. Ledger dispatched a small band of troops to key strategic positions throughout the county, where he hoped they would, quote, offend the enemy as much as possible. In another manoeuvre, Warren pleaded with Lord Deputy William Russell for the permanent settlement of the O'Moore clan in Gallen, the tribe's ancestral home and a 2,000-acre natural fortress surrounded by 12 miles of mountain, woodland and bog that provided the rebels with a gateway into Kilkenny, Tipperary, Ossery, Eli, Carlow, Queen's County and the very heart of the Pale itself. Captain alleged that it would not only bring peace to the area but would force the O'Moors to, quote, keep and defend the things they had, by which means we knew that uh, we would know where to find them, whereas now they keep in no place. Could be argued that St. Ledger knew that once, the One- once O'Neill and the Northern Threat were subdued, the Crown could easily turn its sights on the final suppression of the O'Moore clan who would be isolated and hemmed into their natural fastness at Gallen, and ultimately destroyed. On the other hand, St. Ledger could very well have realised that by July 1596, 
the government did not have the sufficient troop numbers to allocate towards suppressing the Midlands uprising. Although a vocal critic of martial law, claiming that it did, quote, some hurt and is like to do more, the Marybury lieutenant also stressed that if the Gallon settlement failed, it would be necessary to put the Umoors, quote, down at first, or swiftly and effectively subdue the clan and permanently neutralise their threat to the county. As transpired, St. Ledger more or less attempted to bring this to pass. Hence, when it became abundantly clear that the government was in no rush to embrace the Gallon settlement project, St. Ledger embraced the alternative and targeted ringleaders of the Leash Rebellion. In December 1596, he, cor- he cornered and killed William McRory O'Moore in the woods just outside of Strabley. The following January, the seasoned veteran and his forces claimed the heads of two more of Oney's most formidable lieutenants, but also warned the government that the O'Connor's growing strength in Offaly and ninthly Butler cattle raids in coalition with the Moors were severely disrupting the peace. Although St. Ledger's actions during this period earned him the height of praise from the government and a subsequent knighthood, he was allegedly loaded by the O'Moore clan for holding, quote, a hard hand over them, not suffering any strangers to follow them. However, by the end of the year 1597, St. Ledger's fortunes had well and truly soured, as he suffered a crushing defeat alongside Captain Walter Hovingdon, who was slain in the encounter outside the walls of Maryborough. In the aftermath of the battle, the fortress was once again sacked and burned. Unsurprisingly, a Crown investigation was launched to determine who was culpable for the military blunder. St. Ledger refused to harbour any blame for the loss and alleged that it was inevitable due to insufficient government reinforcement. The captain himself, he, he claimed that um, he'd only received the assistance of Terence O'Dempsey and, and Robert Whitney. So he pretty much alleged that his forces had been simply overwhelmed. Warm subsequently scolded Thomas Butler, who he claimed could have done more to, quote, finish the good of this poor and all-lost country, as well as Captain Thomas Lee, for diverting Tyrell and his O'Moore and O'Connor allies into the region in the first place. Ormond denied the allegations, or accusations, and countered by claiming that St. Ledger and Hovenden had earned their defeat, having promoted the rebel band uh, with sufficient troop numbers to adequately, uh, with more than sufficient troop numbers to adequately deal with the threat. Meanwhile, the two large justices, Loftus and Gardner, as well as the Privy Council itself, initially displeased by St. Ledger's, Ledger's imprecise and vague recollection of the skirmish, ruled in his favour and absolved him of any wrongdoing. In March 1598, Oney O'Moore and Hugh O'Neill eventually agreed to talks, by which time St. Ledger managed to persuade the Crown that the Gallon scheme was the only feasible solution to the crisis. However, it was simply a case of too little too late, as the O'Moore chieftain had grown overtly ambitious and defiant, and vowed to reclaim, quote, all the spiritual lands of Leash. Thus, having incurred yet another setback in restoring peace to Queen's County, St. Ledger retired to Dublin in January 1598, to give himself time to recover from a wound he sustained from a fall from his horse some years earlier. However, things took a turn for the worse when the English captain was ambushed during the night and his home was set alight. Narrowly managing to escape with his life, the incident left St. Ledger destitute. Sir Geoffrey Fenton, former secretary to Lord Deputy Arthur Grey and a prominent privy councillor, appealed to the Queen soon after to compensate the Maryborough lieutenant for his extensive losses, considering that he, quote, served long in Ireland with good credit and without reproach. By the following month, he was appointed constable of Monster Evan and given command of over 150 troops. It seems clear that by April 1599, St. Ledger, then a sworn privy councillor, had not been reimbursed by the Crown for his extensive financial losses, and he further claimed that he was owed an additional £500 in order to cover the entertainment of his troops over the previous seven months. In August of that year, St. Ledger pleaded once again to the Queen for financial assistance, 
and alleged that in, a Queen's, in the Queen's County, a place he regarded as, quote, well-seated with English gentlemen, no subject can keep his house without immediate means from Her Majesty. Fearing that, quote, now the traitors have and will not only reap their own harvest, but most of the subjects. Unsurprisingly, St. Ledger's pleas went unnoticed. In September 1599, he was reassigned alongside Sir Henry Power to the province of Munster to administrate its civil and martial affairs on a salary of 20 shillings a day. It was there that St. Ledger met his end in mid-February 1600 in a skirmish with Hugh Maguire, Lord Fermanagh and Hugh O'Neill's most significant cavalry commander. The sources suggested that Maguire killed St. Ledger when he drove a staff through his skull, but in turn, before his death, the former Maryborough lieutenant inflicted a mortal wound of his own upon the Fermanagh Lord with a shot from his petronel. St. Ledger's sacrifice was not in vain, however, as his forces claimed the heads of Maguire's foster father, priest, and every senior commanding officer of his regiment. Arguably, it was a fitting end for the seasoned war veteran who committed so much of his life to serving the Queen's interests in the Midlands and installing the Queen's peace throughout the turbulent border shire. The final captain, Francis Rush, was appointed as St. Ledger's successor following the relief of Maryborough in early 1599. Rush's family hailed from Sudbourne in Suffolk and Francis was a direct descendant of Sir Thomas Rush, who was knighted in 1533 uh, sorry, following the coronation of Anne Boleyn. Chief Constable also allegedly had some ties to Robert Devereux, 2nd Earl of Essex, that traced back to at least 1591, and he was also referred to, quote, as a kinsman of Robert Radcliffe, 5th Earl of Sussex. Before undertaking his position in Maryborough, Rush served in Normandy, Cadiz and Picardy, as well as Commissioner for Musters in 1593 and 1596, respectively, for the counties of Suffolk and Norfolk, before eventually being bestowed, being bestowed by knighthood by Essex in May 1599. It seemed apparent that Armand considered the captain to be of, quote, better trust than his predecessors, and the ideal candidate for restoring law and order to the stronghold and its surrounding areas. There can be little doubt that Rush had a staggering challenge ahead of him, as the troops under his command and throughout Leinster in general were in a desperate state. In fact, Armand alleged that the great majority of them were totally impoverished, starving and severely underpaid for their services, <coughs> receiving just two months of pay out of nine. Instantly, however, the new constable made an impression on the beleaguer colony stronghold. There can be little doubt the additional troop numbers he was assigned, over 500 men, played a significant role in this. From the 9th of May to the 9th to the 18th of May, 1599, he executed a number of, quote, famous rebels, including a Captain Nugent, quote, reckoned to be one of Tyrone's best captains, and placed their heads on pikes on the walls of Maryborough to serve as a warning against any future incursions by the Gaelic-Irish upon the fort. Furthermore, Rush recruited an elderly English soldier married to a Gaelic-Irish woman and suspected of treason as a spy to help to infiltrate only MacRory O'Moore and his band of rebels. The strategic move paid dividends for Rush when his agent managed to persuade a large contingent of the rebel soldiers to follow him into the fort on the night of 4th January 1600. There, Sir Francis launched a devastating ambush and trapped a number of the unsuspecting rebels in a cellar just below the fort. Furious engagement ensued whereby over 35 rebels were slain with not a single loss incurred to Maryborough Garrison. Rush himself suffered grievous wounds during the skirmish, including the loss of an eye and a proficient blow to his right hand. Unquestionably, the incident was a major setback and a crushing blow to Oni and his Moor clansmen, and in turn a major morale boost for Rush and the men under his command. However, the ambush was also shrouded in controversy, um, albeit more so from a modern perspective than, than at the time itself. Appears then the final stages of the Garrison's assault upon the cellar Rush's men, in apparent fit of rage, rage butchered several O'Moors who had already surrendered. Although it unquestionably reflects badly on the chief constable, as he was the one in the position of command, 
it seems quite clear that Rush gave no order for the prisoner's execution, was largely powerless to prevent what occurred. <coughs> Nevertheless, in the aftermath of the massacre, Rush was highly commended by numerous individuals within Elizabeth's government, including Lord Justice George Carey for, quote, having done of late very good service at the Fort and Leash. I wish he received thanks according to his good desert. Queen herself also praised Rush for showing, quote, good government and carriage as hat deserved commendation. Her Majesty does conceive that good opinion of the gentleman for his sufficiency and knowledge in martial affairs. Rush quickly followed up the government victory in Marybury with a second ambush, ambush where over 28 rebels um, were killed and numerous cattle and treasure were seized. Unsurprisingly, Gaelic reprisals quickly followed, the most noteworthy of which occurred just outside the fort in April 1600 when only promised the starving garrison of the fort some much-needed corn and replenishment. Graciously accepting the offer, Rush's lieutenant sent 20 crown soldiers to receive the replies, supplies from the drop site, but they were instead surrounded and subsequently slaughtered by Omoot and his men. This set back aside, and in due consideration of his many months of good service, the captain was eventually entrusted to lead a band of 400 men to the fort at Nace to rendezvous with the Lord Deputy. Once there, it seems clear that Mount Joy was expected to assign Francis and his troops to whatever part of Ireland most required their services. Yet the final stages of the war were not without um, its struggles for the Maryborough Constable. For one, Rush struggled to cover his costs in the Queen's County. This was never more apparent than in May 1601, when he appealed to Sir Robert Cecil for patronage, stating that his, quote, poor and private command yielded little matter worthy attention. It was also during this period that Francis' brother, Captain Anthony Rush, was slain in a skirmish with Hugh O'Neill and his forces near Dundalk, along with 20 government troops. To compound matters even further, the fort he oversaw was in great disrepair, and he was expected to cover the £300 cost of its renovation. However, the captain's financial concerns were quite odd, considering that he possessed significant tracts of land in Clonus, as well as extensive monastic lands on the Mead, West Mead and Offaly border, borders. Moreover, his lands in the north of the country were granted as part of the initial stages of the Ulster plantation, where the Crown hoped that, quote, worthy men worthy gentlemen, such as Rush, who were humble and discreet, would assist in the removal of some, quote, headstrong natives. No doubt the government realised that Rush was perfect for such a venture that required, quote, a significant degree of force as well as persuasion. By 1611, Rush was appointed as a privy councillor, as well as a constable of Phillipstown Fort in Kings County. Still, much like the majority of his counterparts scattered throughout the country, Sir Francis's career was also tarnished by controversy. For instance, in the year 1613, an election took place at the Offaly Stronghold in order to determine the Knights of the Shire the town would send to Parliament to represent the interests of Kings County. It was alleged that Rush and his accomplice Adam Loftus rigged the votes in their favour, perhaps even in collusion with the Sheriff of the time, to the detriment of two Gaelic-Irish candidates, Sir John McCoughlin and Calico Malai. The latter contender, O'Malley, was particularly significant as he allegedly spoke no English, but nevertheless wanted a stake within um, Offaly's local government. These allegations were eventually investigated by the Crown, who deemed the election result illegal, considering the fact that neither Rush nor Lofton were residents of the county. However, all of this aside, Francis eventually died in poverty, and in significant arrears of over £1,400, leaving his wife and seven children financially crippled. In conclusion, and returning to the question posed at the outset of this paper, it is quite apparent that Warham St. Ledger and Francis Rush fulfilled the duties expected of him by the Crown. Although St. Ledger was ultimately unsuccessful in preventing Maryborough from being seized by rebel forces at the height of the war, he otherwise set a high standard of what was to be expected of local government officers in the Midlands. His actions including the dispatchment of what little troops he had to strategic areas associated with dissent and the elimination of the Amor clan's elite 
prevented the Queen's County from being reclaimed by its dispossessed and disgruntled natives. Comparably, Francis Rush regularly plays for his, quote, valorous service at the Fort Leash and considered free from match with the Irishry and other suspectful causes of corruption, played an instrumental role in restoring law and order to the Midlands countryside. Not only did uh, the O'Moores and O'Connors fail to seize Maryborough again for the remainder of the Nine Years' War, but Francis also managed to inflict several heavy defeats on the Gaelic Rebel Coalition, often putting his life at risk and incurring grievous wounds in the process. This was all the more impressive, considering that his achievements were carried out with an under-equipped, underpaid, and practically starved band of troops. As a result, his talent for martial affairs did not go unnoticed by the Crown, who recommended him on numerous occasions for difficult and prominent assignments further afield, such as the Gallon Project, that cried out for, quote, a discreet commander, such as Francis Rush, with a proven record of pursuing rebels into their fastnesses as foxes into their dens. Therefore, by the time of his death, it was quite apparent that Francis was one of the country's most reliable and effective captains. In some, by the end of the Nine Years' War, the two captains had successfully consolidated government-held positions and punished any rebels that threatened to unsettle existing balances of power. As a result, their case studies illustrated that the critiques of individuals such as the Earl of Ormond, among others, were in fact disingenuous and in generalisation. Consequently, um, I would argue that evaluations such as these should be challenged by early modern historians, as they are largely unhelpful to understanding local governmental officers as a whole during this period, and particularly how they operated under pressure and during times of crisis. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.